Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 13, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests are going to be Melissa Saavedra Gill. She's founder of Steamy Lit to talk prior to her book convention later this summer in Anaheim, celebrating diversity in romance and the romance genre post-Dobbs. Representation, relevance, and agency Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Melissa Saavedra Gill, CEO and founder of Steamy Lit, The Steam Box, is going to explore the romance novel genre into the realms of representation, socio-political relevance, and agency. We met at the recent Los Angeles Times Book Festival, and we started a string of thought experiments that I'd like to bring here, listeners. Prior to founding Stimulate, Melissa was an account manager at Anthony Travel in San Diego, a workforce coordinator at Northwest Workforce Council in Oak Harbor, Washington, a travel coordinator also in Oak Harbor, a personnel specialist in her four-year career in the U.S. Navy in San Diego, and earlier years in retail sales management. She completed her sports management work in higher education with an associate's degree at Santa Fe College and her bachelor's at the University of Florida. She comes to us today from Deerfield Beach, Florida, not quite packing for the Anaheim Convention, and yes, almost over a recent bout with COVID. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Melissa Saavedra-Gill. Thank you for having me. And thank you for sailoring on today with us. <laughs> so first, I just want to thank you. You've steered me to the title, Before I Let Go. It's written by Kennedy Ryan. It was steamy, luscious, and silky brown. So I did get to read that in preparation to sort of get me in the mood for, you know, what, what ro romance novels bring. But first, we kind of need to know how you made the leap, how you found a need for a particular realm in romance fiction. And as you say in earlier interviews, how you embrace, you want people to embrace their sexuality and celebrate self-love. So how did you make that transition? I know everybody asked, we get to ask that too. Yeah, of course. Um, so I was married um, during the 2020 like lockdown pandemic and um my ex-spouse at the time was uh, deployed. He was also in the Navy. So I really spent that year by myself. And um, I really turned to just romance novels um, and just like joy, happily ever afters uh, to kind of keep me going that year. But as I was reading the books, I realized that there were a lot of scenes that were hot and steamy. And um, there was a lot of sex education in a sense. Uh, and for folks like me who grew up in a household where we didn't talk about sex, we didn't talk about orgasms, we didn't talk about anything like that. Um, you know, it was really refreshing to read about it. And so um, I kind of started wondering, like, what, like, are we talking about these scenes? Like, and how public are we talking in what platform, I guess, like, how are we embracing our sexuality through these books? And obviously, we know that there's a lot of like stigma and just taboo surrounding both sexuality and reading romance and so I thought someone should really pair romance books with vibrators like that feels like a really good idea and my friend was like well why don't you like try it out and so it's kind of what um steered me in that journey so is that what's in the box yeah no it's the romance books and vibrators and so that's where, okay, because I saw the product line in there and, uh, you know, some of us haven't ordered yet, so we don't know. Okay, so there it is <laughs> right there, that little cute little box that you've opened up and are showing on various platforms. 
So um, I let's talk about then. You you started already with how romance fiction is a bit of a surrogate for sex education, and so I mean, and that could be for any anybody's sort of cultural backgrounds. Break down why you think it's a surrogate for sex education. Because it what's starts going on in that in that narrative that's sort of giving. I would say more context to what's going on between someone. Yeah, I think it's because it starts the conversation, right? Um, Like I remember really early on um, when I started the Steambox, I would talk to our subscribers a lot more and just kind of gauge, you know, where they were at in this term of embracing their sexuality, right? And um, like a lot of people were very vulnerable and shared when, you know, they had their first orgasm, they didn't know what was happening. um, Like they didn't know what was happening with their bodies. And so it's like two faceted because you don't want to ultimately authors are writing fiction. Right. But I also feel like there's some kind of degree of responsibility when you're writing fiction that, um, especially when you're talking about things like sex and sexuality and gender and breaking stereotypes and things like that. Um, there, there's a form of education, right? And so I think through books, um, especially through romance books, like not only do you, maybe read about what an orgasm is for the first time but you might also learn about different things that are happening with your body or with your partner's body that maybe you didn't know um you know what that function was or or what was happening in that um specific scene in person that you were participating in but then you read it and you're like wait then i feel like there's also the the portion of reading something and because you've never had a space to be able to talk about it realizing that maybe it's something you're into right and so then you go into like exploring different kinks and different things that you like um but as I mentioned earlier you know I didn't grow up in a household that talked about sex at all um it was just kind of like let's take you to get your HPV shot and here's birth control. But there was no, um, (laughs) there was no other conversation regarding it. Right. So um, it was just really interesting to me to be able to like read books that are explaining to me what my mom couldn't, you know? Right. And so I, I'm at a loss to recall. It's a, a American researcher that did comparative studies of, Sex education, it was a Netherlands population at versus American population. And in the, the difference was the, uh, the Dutch sex ed curriculum raised the specter of pleasure and mm-hmm. it doesn't show up. And so you're they're sort of giving a, an, a, a you're inferring there's a pleasure element in sure. in all of this, of course. And I actually so, just read about that um, study, but I, I I read it through a um, like how parents in the Netherlands approach sex education versus parents in America, um, and it was normalized the conversation in the Netherlands with parents. It was it was a normalized conversation. They were okay with their kids, their teenagers, significant others spending the night. They had conversations about this it was normal right and um where in America I think we almost like are are trying to scare people away from it um and it was it was it was a really interesting read for me right and so when she expresses that difference then there is a symmetry asymmetry in American education is if there isn't the erectile physiology it can't be mentioned without it being a, a matter of pleasure that's on the males that express that understanding of male pleasure but it just like the line's dead on the other side on the female right. side of experiencing sex so that that's happening here thank you very much puritans we just can't shed this <laughs> but you have a latino latina background and that uh, speaks to so many other kinds of, of not just puritanical influences Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I talked recently at an interview about like how religion, you know, kind of um, like influenced my own like journey with like embracing sexuality. And, you know, again, right, you grow up in a um, Latinx, Latine household Mm -hmm. that um, doesn't 
talk about it, but also because we grew up in a Catholic church and the Catholic church, right? Like doesn't talk about, you know, sex, if it's not marital sex and, um, it's for the pleasure of your spouse. And so, um, again, right. Like I think even now when I had to have a conversation with my mom of like, Oh, by the way, I'm selling vibrators now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, she still won't talk about pleasure. She still won't talk about like what her first orgasm was like. She won't even talk about the word orgasm. Right. So it's, it's really interesting how, you know, those upbringings can really stay with you and how do we break out from those, um, you know, I don't want to say that my mom wants to, in her, in my growing up, try to shame me, um, anything that had to do with sexuality, but I feel like there's kind of like a subtext, right. When you grow up in a household like that. And so like, um, how do you, how do you embrace your sexuality and release the shame that society continues to put in us? And I feel like this happens a lot with just like romance reading, um, and how stigmatized or how tabooed it has it, it's almost like talked down upon. Um, it's always the it's always referred to as a like lesser genre when I think romance brought in the most money in publishing last year, right? And so um it, it's it's really interesting to see how sexuality and embracing your sexuality and romance books kind of intersect in that sense. Well, I want to talk about that relevance a little bit later, but let, I want to break down all of these elements that come into the romance genre and you're trying to uphold here is that there's self-care that you're help, there's shattering the stigmas we talked already about exploring pleasure and there's you're you're maybe in the context of a, a romantic storyline the 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 consent how ne- consent is negotiated and how demands are requested in the interplay between two people Sure. I joke about this all the time. And I say, I only want to fall in love with a man that is written by a woman. (laughs) Um, And that's because in romance books, consent is so explicit, right? Like the men in these books are making sure triple double checking that you are okay with the next step. And it's not just the initial like, okay, let's have sex. But even as different acts are taking place, these men or just these characters in general are like checking in as far as consent, right? Um, You also talk about um, STD sometimes in certain romance books. And I think that that really helps to stigmatize the conversation around STDs and STIs. Um, You have other books that have, you know, started to bring up just abortions or pregnancy. And, you know, like how how comforting is it especially in in the times that we're living in right now you know as a woman to be able to like read about these topics in a safe space as like romance is for me so i'm wondering if the more available the more the broader the kind of reach and the textures and the ethnicities and cultural uh, sort of backgrounds on this if it's ever more present and it does become there are templates. Okay, this is how consent was mapped out in the storyline. So how does that look in my personal life kind of thing? Do you think that there is more of an inroad because consent isn't, that is still, that is not a, a, that is not a done deal. That is not a, a resolved kind of um, aspect of intimacy. Yeah, um, no, definitely. I- I think for me, um, as I've grown into like just my sexuality and just like learning more about just consent and pleasure, I feel like as I read some books, I've definitely questioned past experiences that I've dealt with and like, was this okay? Was this not okay? And I feel like a lot of readers have these same experiences. Indeed. And I've I've mentioned in preparation, there was a very interesting, it's a professor, Jean Shepard at UCI, and she published in 2016, we talked about on the show, it's called Moving Performances, Divas, Iconicity, and Remembering the Modern Stage. And she talks about, then there's the additional part of what those 
what our roles, what are the limited roles in expressing sexuality. And she talked about the performer Overton Walker that uh, was limited by what she could. There was only certain ways that black women could be performing a sexual being. And and a quoting from her was stars are built from situations that are supplied them. So that's that's still something that the romance novel is trying to work on. And you're you're selecting texts and amplifying them to help see for us for readers to see everybody in all kinds of roles and in, in the, realizing their sexuality. Yeah, diversity plays a very important role in the mission of Steamy Lit and the Steam Box. And a lot of that comes from me wanting to see myself in romance, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, it's, there's something so powerful when you're able to see your culture, your heritage, um, anything that, anything that is you, right, in, in media. And when I sought out books that had Latinx in Latin a representation, there was something so powerful about seeing people who had similar customs as me, um, similar upbringings that were also able to find happiness outside the trauma. I feel like, you know, when you are reading fiction or it just, yeah, just fiction in general, especially when it comes to uh, marginalized identities or communities, there's so much focus on our trauma and not our happiness. And so, just being able to find those books where like, I'm talking about romance, I'm talking about friendships, I'm talking about love and pleasure. And, and I get to see myself in that it's, it's really powerful. And that is why I wanted to make sure that I embrace that and make sure that I amplified that through our, our, our box. Um, and as well as just introducing people to new cultures and new identities that maybe they have not been able to read before maybe they have not sought out before um to really just show that there is so much literature out there in romance that's not just written by white women and you know don't get me wrong i there's plenty of authors that i love and that i love to read that are white women but you know like 92% of publishing is white and and so we need to expand that. And I think that we only become better people and better beings in this world if um, we can start reading and relating to the stories of others. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Melissa Saavedra Gill, founder and CEO of Steamy Lit, a romance novel business that centers sexuality and diversity. And she's speaking in advance of the Steamy Lit Con to be held in Anaheim this August 18th and 19th. When you mention the diversity of voices, and it's something I thought about when I read Before I Let Go, just in preparation for this interview, as a white woman I'm reading, it's a it's a Black-centered, identified storyline here. But I hearing from Vietnamese American, Viet Thanh Nguyen, and when he talks about what is the obligation, though, of a writer of one kind of culture to break down everything that is all the cultural references in the storyline? And because you were saying it's it's a book could be written for for all cultures, but the Viet Thanh Nguyen is saying, does he as a a novelist, does he need to always have to explain to white audiences what that particular thing is? Like he said, fuh. A, a stew that is made in the Vietnamese, you know, culinary tradition. So, are, are, when you're reading it, do you find that it's all right? The authors can sort of just stay in the context, or do the authors have to step out and explain to white readers what this is all about? I don't think so, and it's something that I actually um, it it kind of pisses me off in just like the general sense because a lot of books written by folks that are not white um tend to get reviewed by white people um when they're reading the books and they usually give lower ratings to books if they don't understand the element of the book like you said you know parts of the cu- culture or the fuh or or whatever that might be and so 
there is i think a much bigger conversation happening in the in the romance community of exactly what you said like why is it the author's responsibility to explain to you what fa is and honestly i feel like in this day and age like google is free and um something that i have really enjoyed reading or doing when i'm reading books about cultures that are not like my own is googling the dishes and googling the recipes and um you know if i'm reading on my kindle looking up what that word might mean like it's not i feel like it's only going to make you a richer person for looking up those things and so i think that no there is no responsibility to explain to white audiences i think that as a reader if you're reading a book by a white person if you read something that you don't understand or you're not familiar with you would probably look it up or you would probably carry on so um it's a really interesting dynamic on how readers respond to books and reviewers as you said because the reviewers are the gatekeepers of whether there's going to be this this massive following from new readers of a, a book that's just recently released. Yeah. Well, how, Melissa, I'm going to challenge you a few ways here. How do you respond to claims of a, a kind of a conventionality of the happily ever after romantic fiction? Can you expand a little so, bit? So, I mean, how how relevant is the romance genre with it's all of its conventional trappings that it, there's always a happily ever after kind of an arc to a story. People that are maybe outside of consuming the genre say, well, I'm not interested because it's, a, it's an arc that I know it's going to happen. Sure. But you don't know what's going to happen in the book. Right. So like, I think that that's what's so um, great about reading a romance book I mean and in that same sense right it's like when you're reading a thriller I think you're you're going into the same thing just the opposite right when you're reading a thriller you know someone's getting murdered kidnapped you know there's not a happy ending there <laughs> um, where when you're reading romance there is a happy ending and so I guess like my question is why not and um, also, right, in, in the same line of thought as thrillers, you know that it's not going to end happily, but you have no idea what that thriller is about. And so it's the same thing with romance. You have no idea what that book is about other than at the end, the couple will be together, right? But as you read Before I Let Go, right? Like Before I Let Go touches on mental health. It touches on community. It touches on postpartum. It, it touches on so many things and so it touches on kids right like <laughs> the complications of rocking in those currents yeah and so like you would miss out on all of that just because you didn't want to read a happy ending um you know it doesn't really make sense to me um so yeah I mean I feel like sure we know how it ends but you don't know what like I guess the meat and potatoes of the book are right okay okay so also a step further is how do you see the potential for is there satire or subversive treatments of this genre i don't know um i don't know that i've read any yeah i don't think i've read any satire in it. i don't think so i i feel like it because why couldn't happily ever after have a laugh at itself because I'm not sure it's at, is it at that stage, the genre can uh, the genre have a laugh at itself, or is it still, you know, there's an earnestness that isn't ready for the satire part. Um, I don't think so because I feel like as a genre we're still fighting so many things, right? Like we're still fighting, like just publishing and just other readers in general, like not like turning down their noses at the genre because they think that reading about romance is lesser than, right? So I feel like there's some other battles that like need to be won out before we move on to satire um but yeah i i mean i think um i don't know like is there satire for for thrillers uh or for oh, like oh absolutely oh yeah yeah i don't think we're there i mean it's an interesting thought, though, isn't it? When I it was just it introduced to me when I was preparing the script, and I thought, "Wow, that I mean, uh, you maybe Melissa, maybe this is where you can really like break through." You say, uh, "I'm an entrepreneur and promoting this genre, and uh, who here in this 
setting, convention or uh, online on your social media and all that, and say, who's stepping up with a good biting satire of happily ever after? You're in a great position to do it. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to do some research and see what's what's out there. What has potentially maybe been made. It's an interesting thought, though. Yeah, well, that's those are the thought pieces from starting out there. And so also you did mention in the elements we talked about earlier in this interview about pregnancies, accidental, complicated pregnancies, you know, bad outcomes. But what do you and this is where I asked you when I met you at that mm -hmm. L.A. Times Book Festival booth is the recent Dobbs ruling that is limiting that that is making illegal very in very early stages of a pregnancy any kind of reproductive health care so and there is in before i let go there is a pregnancy that is uh that falters that there's a fatal outcome for the you know for the fetus but there's also a question of whether she might have conceived later in the book i don't think i'm blowing any <laughs> any surprises there but so, but with the Dobbs ruling, do you think that there's going to be some added parts to this arc of the happily ever after they have to go somewhere, have to leave the the setting to go to some place where they may need access to a healthcare? I think so. Um, I think that the romance community is really good about taking a stance um like i and i think i mentioned this to you at the con like uh, meet cute bookshop in san diego they just finished doing their annual not a, like an auction um they have a bunch of like people in the romance community donate items and the auction is for reproductive rights to donate money to reproductive rights and so um you know i feel like there are a lot of people already shifting that because it's such a r real <laughs> it's such a real problem that we have um and you know just how you read in that kennedy ryan book where you know we're talking about very real life issues we're talking about depression we're talking about a stillbirth right like we're talking about these things um romance has a really I hate to say nice, but a really nice way in incorporating really tough topics into the narrative. And I think that it's done in such a way where if you might be on the other side of this, it'll make you think, right? Because you're here reading about these two people that are going through X, Y, Z, who now have to do these ridiculous measures to maybe get an abortion because it's not where they're at right so I think that's something that I really enjoy about the romance genre but definitely I mean um I've heard I haven't read but I have heard from different people in the community that there are more books that are bringing up these things or even like as a casual you know like one-liner type thing in the books that it's really nice to pick up on because it's like it's not anything that anyone has forgotten about and it's something that everyone's actively trying to fight to make change because it's ridiculous and in the diversity of voices there's obviously queer voices and so talk about that aspect too of bringing current the the storylines in the happily ever after yeah, I, I mean, I think it explores, the thing with publishing too is that, you know, we're so, books publish so much later than when the actual books are written. But again, um, I mean, especially, you know, as we talked earlier, I'm in Florida and, you know, trans rights are getting attacked left and right. And the rights of just people part of the LGBTQIA community keep getting taken away and, it's something that I feel like not only the romance community, but just like the, the reader community as a whole is really taking it upon themselves to do all kinds of things. Like earlier this year, they had a like trans rights week where I can't remember how many people participated, but basically they asked for everyone to, you know, drop what they were reading that week and just read books featuring trans characters or by trans people. It, similar things are happening on and on and on um and it's not 
I don't want to say it's sad um, because it's actually a beautiful thing that the way the way that the, the just the community, the book community in general comes together. But, you know, like we I just wish it's sad that we're leaving. We're leaving in these times and, um, you know, with book bands, that, that's like something that's huge. And, you know, trying to figure out like, OK, how do we I think here in Miami Books and Books the other day did um, like a huge giveaway of like books that are being banned and they were giving them away to people as they would, you know, come shop. So, you know, there are different ways that as a community as a whole is trying to fight back. But um, it's just a crappy time to be living in. Yes. Yes. Well, I I want to give you a chance to talk about what you want to get done at the August 18th through 19th steamy lit convention in Anaheim. It's not at the convention center. It's nearby at the Anaheim Marriott, but what, what do you want to bring together in that big tent? I want to bring together just authors and readers who are champions and who are champions in, you know, celebrating diversity and romance. Um, and that's, in different kinds of ways, right? Like it might be readers that are intentional about the books that they're picking up and um, making sure that they're supporting authors that are part of marginalized communities or identities. And then it's also celebrating the authors who write these books. And it's also celebrating the authors who might be white, who are also making sure that they use their platform to champion diversity and romance in general. And I also want to create a space for authors and aspiring authors to be able to connect and really just build relationships. I myself am very big on building relationships within your own networks. And that's just one of what I want to create. I want to connect people who love to read and write romance to each other and see how, you know, together we can just kind of move the genre forward. So in preparation, we were talking a little bit about self-publishing. There's a lot of writers that are just, that's kind of their agency that they're exercising is, I'll, I'll do this on my terms. I'll make the book available through my own publishing. Are there, what portion of the Steamy Lit Convention is going to include the self-publishing sort of enterprises? I don't have a percentage on hand, but we have a lot of indie authors coming yeah, a lot of our convention is indie, and that's what we wanted to mix, right? We wanted to mix indie and traditionally published authors. Um, we're also going to have a couple panels, and one of the panels are, you know, it's going to be an ask me anything for, like, indie authors so that other aspiring indie authors or readers want to come and ask these authors anything who have done really well for themselves, um, you know, publishing independently. And we're also going to have, you know, a traditional one so that people can, but, you know, I think it goes back to connecting people and, you know, maybe indie is the route for you to go, but maybe, you know, traditional publishing is too. You just haven't thought about it because you haven't had access to those people. So that's something that I want to work towards being better at for the next few years as we grow Steamy LitCon is being able to provide people access and just like connecting them to people that they may have not had the same connections to before. Is this the first? This is the first. Oh, how groundbreaking. My goodness. And you thought Southern California, Orange County would be a pretty good place to get all these talents together? Yeah, so I actually lived in San Diego up to not that long ago. So I wanted it to, for a lot of readers and authors, you know, sometimes going to a convention like this, it's like they're only, they're taking up their only like vacation time or something like that. So I wanted to make sure that it was at a place where they could vacation before or after the convention, or if they wanted to bring their families, you know, and their families do their thing throughout the day while they're at the convention. So I, I wanted to be very intentional about that. And so Anaheim just felt like the right spot for it. And that'll be our home for the next three years, for sure. Okay, very good. Well, I hope I get to stop in and see you. Thank you. I really appreciate your time with us today, Melissa. And get well on the way. <laughs> Thank you. I think I'm on the way up. My guest was Melissa Saavedra Gill, founder and CEO of Stimulit, a romance novel business that centers sexuality and diversity in advance of the steamy lit con to be held in Anaheim this August 18th and 19th. 
My guest coming up in the next segment is Jackie Mentor with the Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees in advance of her organization's June 20th World Refugee Day Open House. El cariño que te tengo no te la puedo negar Se me sale la babita yo no la puedo Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader is my next guest, Jackie Mentor, founder and executive director of Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees, just a week ahead of their June 20th World Refugee Day open house to be held at the nearby Mirage Jewish Community Center in their Holocaust Memorial Garden. Jackie is an independent volunteer and activist helping refugees locally and abroad. Over numerous trips to Greece, Jackie volunteered in refugee squats and camps, supplying humanitarian relief as a first responder to refugees arriving by boat. And she's now continuing her aid efforts here in Orange County because there's so much happening here. She's founded the Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees, also served with the TIA Foundation, Friends of OC Detainees, the Multi-Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees, and HIAS. She's worked in the Orange County Jewish community for over a quarter of the century and previously with the Jewish Federation and Family Services and American Jewish Committee, now currently, as I said, just focusing on the collaborative here. She joins me today. She's coming to us, I believe, from Newport Beach, is it not? Hi, Claudia. Good morning. Is it Newport Thank Beach? Thank you for having me. Um, I'm coming to you from San Clemente. She's coming to us from San Clemente, where lots and lots of work is going on all around us. So first, Jackie, let's have you tell us about what is taking place at the World Refugee Day Open House, June 20th. It's an international day organized every year on this day by the U.N., to bring fuller awareness of refugees from around the world who've had to flee their homelands because of conflict or a natural disaster. So well said. Yes, June 20th, every year, International World Refugee Day, to honor and celebrate exactly the individuals who you just mentioned. There are, today, there are 103 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. And of those 103 million displaced individuals, there are over 33 million refugees. That's twice as many refugees as there were 10 years ago. These statistics come from the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, and When the numbers are just so inconceivably large, it's really hard to wrap one's head around it. Um, What it, if you, to put it in terms we can understand a little bit better, one in 78 people in the world is forcibly displaced at the moment. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty staggering. And so our, our World Refugee Day open house this year, it's open to the community. We want to acknowledge, you know, all of those displaced people throughout the globe, share what our organization is doing to help refugees and asylum seekers. We will hear from a Ukrainian refugee who's being resettled in Orange County, and we will also hear um, firsthand the story of an Afghan refugee who fled Afghanistan, and he will tell of his harrowing trip from Brazil to Tijuana and gaining entry legally to the United States at the border at Tijuana. You know, every refugee has an incredibly interesting, harrowing story to share. And it's important, if, if we can't be witnesses firsthand, that 
we kind of witness these experiences by hearing these stories. And so that, yeah, that yes. will be the event. We'll have some refreshments. We'll have some networking. And we will also share opportunities, ways to, to get more involved for people who would like to also volunteer in some capacity. And with such overwhelming numbers for people, as you said, to, to cap, put, wrap their minds around, I believe, and that's your intention, Jackie, and yours and your affiliated folks there, fellow volunteers, is that a story told by a refugee offers that sort of concrete context so people understand. It makes it more real, and that might develop more... I don't. I mean, empathy is like mentioned every other moment, and it's <laughs> starting to lose its value, at least on my ears. But, but the 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 very the vividness of of telling one's story of making their way here may allow for a person in much more comfortable circumstances to understand. Okay, I can. I need to give up something because I can't imagine the depths of this person's despair. Yes. It's, if you haven't seen it firsthand, it's, uh, you know, I have seen it firsthand working in refugee camps. So I imagine that for somebody who hasn't experienced part of the refugee journey firsthand, it's, um, you know, it's something that's very distant in your mind. So to see pictures or to hear firsthand stories of of what these individuals overcome and what they go through is, you know, it's one of the most meaningful things you can do to better understand the situation of the, the world. It's, it is a world refugee crisis that is only continuing to grow. The numbers of displaced people and refugees are higher than they have ever been, and they're they're only increasing, unfortunately. So there's a lot of work to be done. And OCJCR, we work to inspire, educate individuals in the community to, to take some kind of action, meaningful action, that will lend both meaning to their own lives yes. and to the lives of the refugees and asylum seekers that they will be helping and in some cases will have the opportunity to work with directly. So at the place, uh, at the, the memorial garden there, at the Mirage mm-hmm. Jewish Community Center, so people can, they're there to listen, they're there, I mean, you're, you're there to take donations, and are there other things they can bring, prepare? What, what makes that day work for the whole cause? Well, it's a weekday, so we scheduled it for 4.30 with refreshments. So hopefully that's a good time for people to come at the end of a work day and they can still go home and enjoy dinner with their families. They'll be able to network. They'll be able to speak with our Afghan and Ukrainian refugees who will be there. They'll be able to speak with leaders from our organization who are very, you know, they're very high-touch, hard-working volunteers and learn about ways to get involved with this issue. Well, thank you. My guest, if you just joined us, folks, is Jackie Mentor, founder and executive director of the Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees, the OCJCR, as uh, might be the shorthand here, speaking in yes. advance of her organization's June 20th World Refugee Day Open House. So I, I want, I mean, I heard a little piece this morning on National Public Radio about an app that's allowing refugees to make their entry into the U.S. through Tijuana. And so that's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of other data about what's happening on that other side of the border. But right now, mm-hmm. what Jackie has to talk to us about is what's happened once these folks are here. So you, in preparation for this interview, and we're not going to cover it all, folks, we're going to resume where we left off, leave off today mm-hmm. on a wonderful July 4th resumption of this. So, but we've talked in preparation about the cap 
the presidential determination cap of 125000 per year nationally, that is, oh, that's per fiscal year. So I want you to put in context where what the processing status quo is given that. And, and you've given us tens of millions of people moving around, but at, at that cap, 125000 of course, it's a drop in the bucket. But put in context what the flow is currently of refugees who have made their way inside the U.S. Right. It's really important. You bring up an important topic. The, the presidential determination is decided by the president in consultation with Congress each year right before the beginning of the government's fiscal year, which begins October 1st every year. And the Biden administration has set the refugee cap or ceiling for fiscal 23 and fiscal 22 at 125,000 refugees both years. It was a dramatic increase from previous years under the previous administration, and it was well intended. Unfortunately, these numbers are difficult to achieve in actuality for a few reasons. The first reason being that during the previous administration's term, there was an agenda and there was a goal to dismantle the United States refugee resettlement infrastructure, which began the first week of that administration's, um, right after the inauguration, which I believe the first executive order by Trump was the Muslim ban. And so for four years, we did not have refugees coming in from some of the most vulnerable countries, Syria, Iran. There were seven Muslim countries on that Muslim ban. At the same time, that administration was closing down overseas offices who are responsible as part of one cog in the wheel of our refugee resettlement infrastructure to be interviewing refugees overseas and doing all the interviews and the process, health checks, background checks by six American uh, national security organizations. It's, it's a multi-year process from when one is, receives recognition by UNHCR as a refugee and between the time they get that piece of paper saying, yes, you are registered as a refugee now, and the time that they may actually be resettled in another country. So, you know, all of those offices or most of those offices were closed down and those American employees were brought back to the United States. So that's another reason why the whole pipeline and flow of refugees has decreased so dramatically. And the other really important reason, and these are important things to understand why we are where we are today, is that refugee resettlement agencies in the United States rely upon federal funding each refugee resettlement agency receives a prescribed amount of dollars per refugee that they resettle. So now, during the previous administration's term, we had a situation where no refugees were coming, so the resettlement agencies lost millions of dollars in funding, and they had to minimize and a great, I think something like 30% of resettlement offices in the United States simply closed down. And the ones that remained, they had to let go of many staff. So now we also need to build up the infrastructure within the resettlement agencies in the United States so that there will be enough staff to handle the capacity. So, Jackie, so, I, I just want to... Yeah, that's part I, of the backstory. I want to sort of interject too when you use the choice of word of dismantle i also want to suggest that it's a it was a 
disrupting mechanism, it's harder to rebuild something that's where it's been disrupted. Dismantling, it might be a little bit more systematic. So if there's disruption mm-hmm. creates chaos and confusion. And so it's already a very, very messy kind of support to, to build these institutions and, and assist everybody. So I just want to put that in there as we close today and making sure everybody knows about, and I put it on the announcement for today's show at KUCI Talk, the hyperlink there for registering for the open house next Tuesday because people just want to you know keep track. And that's, and that's fine. That's a good thing to do. So we'll talk about in the on the July 4th show sort of the pattern of where doesn't matter where in the world you are leaving your conflict or your natural disaster, people are going to Brazil and then slogging through. We'll talk about that pattern and other mm-hmm. institutional matters. But I just want to put disruption out there because I think that may describe additionally what kinds of you know ordeals that you're having to organize around. Yeah, disruption is a good word. Uh, I often say that the refugee resettlement infrastructure was eviscerated by the previous administration. It was brutal. So that's all we can do now. We'll pick it up, as I promise everybody. I've got other programs planned, but I thought it would make a lot of sense for the 4th of July to bring everybody in. So I want to thank you so much for all that you're doing, Jackie, for being on the show as well today. And looking forward to talking with you on July 4th. Thank you. There's so much more to talk about. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. My guest was Jackie Mentor. And she is the executive director of the Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees. As I said, we'll take it up on July 4th. Well, that's my wrap next week. Working on the details for two dancers with the United Ukrainian Ballet Company who will be performing at the Sagerstrom Hall at the end of this month through July 2. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you.